Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, Episode 8. This week we'll be looking at six stories. The first is an alternate history, the oil and the triumph of Nazi Germany. From the mysterymag.com, another black dog legend, the appearance of a bar guest. And from the damninteresting.com website, Project Alpha and the Spoonbenders. The independent.co.uk has an article entitled The Neanderthal Murder Mystery. And from Unexplained Australia, Min Min Lights. And finally, from the National Geographic News, The Yellowstone Volcano. Is the beast building to a violent tantrum? From the www.unmuseum.org, an alternate history, oil and triumph of Nazi Germany. In 1945, the leader of Nazi Germany took his own life in an underground bunker, surrounded by the smouldering remains of his capital city. What if Hitler had made a simple strategy change in 1941? Could the war have ended with the Axis powers ruling most of the world? and America cowering on the other side of the globe? Adolf Hitler needed oil. By 1941, the German war machine, tanks, planes and trucks, would soon grind to a stop without petroleum. Hitler and his allies controlled most of the continent of Europe, along with parts of northern Africa. But no area within the influence of the Axis powers 
contained enough resources of oil to meet his needs. This was a problem that Hitler needed to solve, and solve soon. In 1939, the Germans had signed the German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact with the Soviet Union. This document secretly divided most of Eastern Europe between the two powers. For Hitler, it removed the worry of having to fight a war on his Eastern Front, while also waging war against England and France in the West. For the Soviet leader Stalin, it meant that he could turn all his attention to a possible attack on his Eastern flank by Japan. By 1941, however, Hitler had most of Western Europe under his control. Though Hitler had access to oil in Romania, and the pact with the Soviets included a clause in which they agreed to sell him oil, Hitler knew these supplies would be insufficient to meet the German war machine's growing hunger. What Hitler wanted was the Soviet Union's extensive oil fields at Caucasus and in 1939 he repudiated the pact and launched an attack upon the Russians. Operation Barbarossa Not that a desire for oil was Hitler's only reason for wanting to start a war with Stalin. He had long looked at Western Russia as a prime real estate for the expansion of the German Empire. He also believed the Soviet Union was weak due to purges done by Stalin to the Red Army leadership in the 1930s. We only have to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down, remarked Hitler, according to Albert Speer in his book Inside the Third Reich. The battle would be fought over ideologies and race too, fascism against communism and the Aryan race against the Slavic race. As Hitler put it, it would be a war of annihilation in which the Soviet Union was to be destroyed and the peoples of Eastern Europe and Russia would either be killed or enslaved. On June 22, 1941, the German army attacked the Soviet Union. Hitler expected the project, designated Operation Barbarossa, to be short, with Stalin surrendering in less than a month. He misjudged the situation gravely. The action went on until the end of the war in Europe in May of 1945 and cost over 5 million casualties on the Axis side, over 80% of the German army deaths during the war. The drain of resources to the Eastern Front was so great that it remains one of the prime reasons the Nazis lost the war. In the end it would be Soviet troops, not British or American, that would march into Germany and take possession of the capital, Berlin mere hours after Hitler had committed suicide to avoid falling into Russian hands. Operation Arab Freedom But what if Hitler had gone a different route? What if he had put off his Eastern expansionist ideas and just concerned himself with getting the oil he needed to continue the war? Some of the largest oil fields in the world are located in Iran, Iraq and Saudi Arabia. As of the spring of 1941, these were all in Allied hands. Starting in September of 1940, however, Italy, under Hitler's fellow Axis dictator Benito Mussolini, invaded British Egypt from Libya and Greece from Albania. Mussolini's campaigns were not totally successful and Hitler was forced to send troops to help secure those areas. While this might have been an annoyance to Hitler at the time, the conquest of Greece could have been used as a springboard for further adventures into the Middle East. 
If he had taken the same number of divisions he had used to invade the Soviet Union and had advanced into Syria or Turkey and then on into Iraq, he might have captured the petroleum facilities with little difficulty. A plan similar to this may have passed through the Führer's mind. On May 23rd, in response to a short-lived coup of the pro-British government in Iraq, he issued Führer Directive 30, a project designed to support the Arab freedom movement. If only he had gone a little further in this thinking, he could have turned this into an operation that would have replaced Barbarossa. Historian John Keegan in his essay, The Drive for the Middle East, 1941, suggests that for Hitler to attack Iraq via Syria, he would have needed to employ an island-hopping strategy, not unlike that used later in the war by the United States against Japan. Launched from the Italian island of Rhodes, a successful invasion of Cyprus would have left him in position to assault Syria with an amphibious force. With the French army in Syria and Lebanon numbering only 38,000 troops, and lacking modern equipment or air protection, it is hard to see how they could have turned back Hitler's armies. The one difficulty with this plan would have been to assemble enough ships to move Hitler's forces around. Most of the suitable vessels in the eastern Mediterranean were already in British hands. If enough ships could not be found, however, Hitler could have pushed his way through neutral Turkey and into the Mid-East oil fields via Istanbul. He hinted at an interest in doing this in Führer Directive 32, in which he talked about assembling a force in Bulgaria, powerful enough to render Turkey politically amenable or overpower her resistance. The Turks were stout-hearted fighters, but lacked modern military equipment and could not have hoped to resist a Nazi onslaught for long. Once Turkey fell, the surrender would have brought Hitler's forces to the edge of the oil fields. What's more, such an attack would have left the Germans into position to take the Russian Caucasus oil fields from the south. An attack from that direction would have eliminated much of the problem of terrain that hampered Operation Barbarossa from the west. In fact, all the goals of Operation Barbarossa would have been easier to achieve if the attack had been put off for a year till Turkey had been secured and the German army could have advanced in two directions, from the south and from the west. Another factor suggesting that an attack by Germany into the Middle East in 1940 would have been successful was Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. Rommel and his 5th Light Division had been sent to Libya early in 1941 to assist the Italians, who had just experienced a series of losses to the British. Rommel, nicknamed the Desert Fox, outfought his Allied opponents in North Africa, despite being outnumbered and ill-supplied. He is generally acknowledged by historians as the best desert combat commander either side produced during the war. He was an aggressive leader who was willing to take risks if he saw a chance to exploit an enemy's weakness. Rommel was always hampered, however, by lack of supplies and troops. In 1942, for example, Rommel and his Africa Corps managed to clear almost all Allied resistance from North Africa all the way to Egypt, but could go no further without additional support that Hitler never sent. 
One can only wonder what would have happened if Hitler had invaded through Turkey or Syria and then matched that action with the necessary support to Rommel for a march through Egypt and Saudi Arabia to join troops advancing through Turkey. With the Axis forces in this position, it is easy to see a very different end to World War II. The Germans under Rommel could have taken most of the Middle East and then moved on to India. Japan could have seized the Indies and linked up with Germany from the east. This would have given them control over almost all of the non-English speaking world. Britain might have held out for a time, but it seems likely that in the end the Axis powers might have controlled much of the world, with the United States isolated in the Western Hemisphere. Alone, America might not have been able to turn back the Axis powers, and we might have seen an alternate world where the swastika would fly over Washington, D.C. And now turning from an alternate history to a mystery in nature. Yellowstone Volcano. Is the beast building to a violent tantrum? And this comes from the news.nationalgeographic.com website. When the volcano in Yellowstone National Park blew 6,400 centuries ago, it obliterated a mountain range, felled herds of prehistoric camels hundreds of miles away, and left a smoking hole in the ground the size of the Los Angeles Basin. Modern Yellowstone doesn't dwell on its cataclysmic past or its potential for another monster eruption. Rangers tell people to keep their distance from bison and steaming geysers, but there are no signs, aside from nature's own bubbling mud pots and geysers, that visitors are wandering through the caldera of one of the largest active volcanoes in the world. This is a geologic park, and not many people know it, said Robert Smith, a geophysicist at the University of Utah, who has spent his career piecing together the story of the Yellowstone volcano. It's not a bison park, not an elk park, it's a geologic park. New censors have allowed researchers to confirm a suspicion that Smith has held for a long time, that the ancient volcano scientists dub the beast is a living force. The instruments record a continuing pattern of heaving and bulging and act as an early warning system. Installed without fanfare and hidden from view, the sensitive devices are an acknowledgement that the past could be prologue, that this seemingly serene plateau could blow so hard that it would make the 1980 Mount St Helens explosion look like a sneeze. This summer, Yellowstone was added to the nation's handful of official volcano observatories. The others, smaller but far better known, are in Hawaii, Alaska, the Cascades and California's Long Valley. The Yellowstone Observatory consists of a string of 28 electronic detection stations scattered throughout the park. Related plans call for at least a hundred more monitoring sites. 
For Smith, who argued for years that the volcano deserved more attention than it was getting, the observatory is sweet vindication. The beast is finally getting its due. What took so long for science to put its ear to the ground, given the fact that geophysicists have known for 30 years that Yellowstone was a major volcanic system? For one thing, Smith said, they couldn't decide whether the Yellowstone system was still active or in its death throes. For another, it doesn't look like a volcano. It's just too big. From the viewpoint of the north rim of the caldera, a few miles from the Yellowstone River's upper and lower falls, the southern edge of the caldera is obscured. It's more than 30 miles away, well within the massive park, but lost in the haze. The last huge eruption was 640,000 years ago. Since then a series of smaller ones have filled in the caldera, like tubes of toothpaste squeezing out all over the place, Smith said. The 3,000-foot-thick glaciers of the last ice age erased edges of the caldera, which is now a broad, undulating plateau rimmed by mountains. The earth has always shaken periodically around Yellowstone, but without the proper monitoring equipment in place, no one knew how often it happened or why. Smith, who has been investigating here for more than 30 years, set up seismometers and found earthquakes by the hundreds. The basin and range country that extends from California to Montana is one of the most seismically active regions east of California's San Andreas Fault. It is being stretched apart as tectonic plates beneath it move. But the earthquakes Smith started tracking three decades ago, 15,000 between 1973 and 1998, often in swarms, didn't altogether fit conventional notions of seismicity. There were quakes where you would expect them to occur, along north-south fault lines perpendicular to the stretching, but there were also some along parallel fault lines, activity that seemed to have no relation to the stretching. Smith started thinking about the quakes in combination with Yellowstone's famously unstable plumbing. Was it possible that both the quakes and the geysers were the product of volcanic action, of underground magma flows? Atop a volcano, mountains are pushed up by swelling magma. The subsequent explosion then destroys them and engulfs their remains. In 1965, a team led by Robert Christensen of the US Geological Survey mapped the massive caldera and various lava flows in detail, while NASA tried out a new remote sensing technology in the region. It was not a surprise it was a young volcano, Christensen said. It was a surprise it was as young as it is. He turned to Smith, whose seismic data would reveal whether the volcano was still rumbling. Together, the two men were able to see the system for what it was, a very large and very active volcano that had sculpted much of the northwest. Smith and Christensen saw evidence that a huge plume of magma rose from deep within the earth and bore through the continental plate. As the plate moved southwest, the hotspot left a series of what Smith terms ancient Yellowstones across a 500-mile-wide swath of southern Idaho from Oregon to Montana. The hotspot theory was dismissed when it was introduced by Smith in 1973. Accepted wisdom said volcanoes were found at the edges of tectonic plates and that hotspots occur mainly on the sea floor. It took people a while to catch on, Smith said.
The evidence ultimately was incontrovertible. There was the blasted topography, the layers of lava flows, the misaligned earthquake faults, and Yellowstone's superheated, effervescent plumbing. Only one force was big enough to account for it all, a massive volcano. What Smith still didn't know was whether it was asleep. In the mid-1970s, while surveying an old benchmark put into place when the first roads were cut through Yellowstone in 1923, Smith found that the ground had risen three feet in five decades. There could only be one explanation. The volcano was bulging upward. Smith and his students spent two years confirming the observation. By 1979, when he published the findings in the journal Science, even sceptics were becoming convinced that Yellowstone was an active volcano. The calder arose an inch a year until 1985. Then a swarm of earthquakes occurred nearby. By 1987, measurements showed that the caldera was falling an inch a year. In 1995, it started rising again. The caldera is now bulging again towards the southwest. Confirmation that the volcano was active was one of the most important factors in getting a new observatory established here. The movement of the volcano also suggests a controversial new idea, forcing many geologists to rethink the very definition of hotspots and how they work. Will it blow again? Until Smith came along, most scientists believe that hotspots originate 1,800 miles down, at the boundary between the Earth's core and mantle. The newly revealed geology of Yellowstone suggests that this hotspot might be very shallow born of the vagaries of heat and changing pressures, or some other process yet unknown. As far as it goes, the scientist's work has yet to answer the most important question of all. Will the volcano blow its top again? New studies by a research team at the University of Wisconsin that analysed tiny crystals with hardened lava suggest a dying but still potent cycle of volcanism. Some people believe that the hotspot is moving under the Rocky Mountains, a much thicker and colder part of the continent, and that it will be effectively capped. Others contend that the cap won't stop the fury of the hotspot. Smith and Christensen can't say for sure, but they know the volcano is not dead. There is no reason, they say, it won't blow again. Christensen doubts the likelihood of another cataclysmic eruption anytime soon, but he doesn't rule out something smaller. Earthquakes, rock slides and steam explosion from geyser basins are all possible. A blowout on the scale of Mount St Helens is conceivable, he said, adding, we need to be prepared. And from the www.unexplainedaustralia.com website, the Min Min Lights. All around the world, ghost lights have been seen by thousands of people. For example, Will-o'-the-Wisp, Jack-o'-lanterns and fairy lights. 
Australia also has its share of stories of strange luminous objects that hover just above the ground, but the most famous is the Min Min Lights. Named after a very small settlement which included a pub, mail exchange and small cemetery which used to stand on the boundary of two big stations, Orenda and Lucknow, 100 kilometres east of the town of Bulia in southwest Queensland. The pub burnt to the ground in the 1800s and very little of the original small settlement exists. The first documented sighting of the Min Min Lights occurred in the Sunday Mail magazine of March 2, 1941, although reports go back much further in time, some 60 years earlier. At about 10pm, as the stockmen passed the Min Min locality, a strange glow appeared right in the middle of the little cemetery, located at the rear of the old hotel. The glow appeared to grow to the size of a small watermelon, hover over the graveyard and then move off in the same direction the stockman was travelling. Terrified, the man galloped towards Bulia with the light allegedly following him all the way until he reached the outskirts of the town. A description of the Min Min. It is usually one light, sometimes double, sometimes several, and sometimes seen as hundreds of little lights. It is generally reported as white, but has been seen as orange, red, green and blue. It may appear for a few minutes or may hang around for hours. It may be stationary or may travel at the speed of a car. It is usually about a metre above the ground at fence height and it may jump or travel along fences. It has been reported high in the sky, at times oscillating up and down like a yo-yo. A frequent feature is that, unlike a headlight, light surrounds it on all sides. It appears to be a curious, friendly light, often approaching but never threatening, although at times causing panic in the minds of the beholders. The most frequent sightings, 36, occurred between 1950 and 1959, with only 12 between 1940 and 49, and 16 in the following decade. Some possible explanations are as follows. The ULO is a UFO, although this is hardly an advance in understanding. Incidentally, the light was reported long before the era of flying saucer invasions. The ULO is burning gas, methane or marsh gas, an indigenous will-of-the-wisp. The light is emitted from a condensation of luminescent, perhaps radioactive gas, for example, radon gas escaping from the artesian aquifer. Light reflection, light refraction, inversion layers, light originating at a distance appearing to be close by. Luminescent insects, genus and species unknown, in a ball of breeding frenzy. Spirits of the departed, returning to warn and give guidance. Fireballs, electrical disturbances, Meteors or meteorites. A disturbance of observation initiated by suggestion and prior description and on occasions enhanced by tiredness and alcohol. Professor Jack Pettigrew believes that the Min Min light is caused by point four, light reflection, light refraction, inversion layers. 
But this does not account for the fact that people have thrown things at the lights, fired shotguns at it, only to have it disappear in front of their eyes. Also, it does not explain accounts of people, as in the above example, who were chased by the light, or stories of children who chased the lights across paddocks in their bare feet. The Min Min lights have been associated with UFOs, but the appearance and behaviour of the lights has little in common with the usual UFO sighting. And now from the www.independent.co.uk website, the Neanderthal murder mystery. Why did Neanderthal man become extinct? Was it interbreeding with humans, or did our ancestors wipe them out? Steve Connor reports on a fossil that may solve the puzzle. The mystery of what killed off the Neanderthals about 30,000 years ago comes a step closer to being solved, with a study suggesting that they formed a tiny population that had been teetering on the brink of extinction. Neanderthals first appeared in Europe at least 300,000 years ago, but they disappeared after the arrival of anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, who first arrived in Europe 50,000 years ago. This has led to speculation about whether the Neanderthals interbred with the new arrivals to form a hybrid population that became submerged in the human gene pool or were instead wiped out by them, either through competition for resources or by violence. The latest evidence and analysis of DNA recovered from a 38,000-year-old fossilised thigh bone suggests the Neanderthals did not interbreed with modern humans but were eradicated by them. DNA extracted from an adult Neanderthal man who lived near caves in what is now Croatia also revealed that the Neanderthals in Europe probably never numbered more than 10,000 individuals at any one time, a precariously small population size. The new evidence about the demise of Neanderthals comes from the complete sequence of DNA within tiny cellular structures known as mitochondria. This mitochondrial DNA is maternally inherited and is easier to isolate from ancient bones than the conventional DNA found within the cell nucleus. The scientists repeatedly decoded the mitochondrial DNA from the 38,000-year-old Neanderthal bone 35 times to make sure that they had the correct genetic sequence so that they could use it as an accurate comparison against the mitochondrial DNA of modern humans and chimpanzees, man's closest living relative. For the first time, we've built a sequence from ancient DNA that is essentially without error, said Richard Green, who led the investigation at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. It is still an open question for the future whether this small group of Neanderthals was a general feature or was this caused by some bottleneck in their population size that happened late in the game, said Dr Green. 
Archaeological evidence shows that the Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans, known as Cro-Magnon Man, occupied the same habitats and sites at overlapping periods of time. But there is no hard evidence that there was any direct contact between the two last species of humans to share living space. There's no proof that they saw each other, only that they inhabited the same place at about the same time. But I think it's likely that they came across one another, said Adrian Briggs, a researcher at the Max Planck Institute, who was part of the study. What we've done is confirm that the mitochondrial DNA of Neanderthals and modern humans was so different that it forms powerful evidence that there was very little, if any, interbreeding between the two species, said Dr Briggs. We have also got tantalising evidence that the Neanderthals formed a small population and we can only speculate as what happened to them. Small population sizes are always more prone to extinction and they have a greater chance of something going wrong. Speculation about who the Neanderthals were and what happened to them has raged ever since the first Neanderthal skull was excavated from the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf in 1856. It is now generally agreed that they were not the direct ancestors of modern humans, but a side branch on man's extensive family tree. However, some anthropologists have clung to the belief that they must have interbred with humans at some stage in their history, which means that there is a little bit of Neanderthal in all of us. However, a number of DNA studies, including the latest published in the journal Cell, have found little to support that theory. Whenever it has been possible to analyse a sequence of heavily degraded DNA fragments extracted from Neanderthal bone, it shows that the genetic variation lies well outside the variation seen in modern humans. The latest study suggests, for instance, that the Neanderthals last shared a common ancestor with modern humans some 660,000 years ago, long before the emergence in Africa of Homo sapiens as a distinct species about 100,000 years ago. However, the scientists who carried out the study emphasised that their work cannot as yet completely rule out the possibility that there was some limited, small-scale interbreeding between Neanderthals and modern humans at some place between the Caucasus and Western Europe, the geographic range of the Neanderthals. One of the best bits of evidence in support of that idea emerged about a decade ago when scientists found the skeleton of a young boy who had died about 25,000 years ago in what is now Spain. His thick-set features suggested he was a hybrid of Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon, but other scientists believe he was just an unusually stocky lad. There is little doubt that Neanderthals would have looked very different from the new arrivals in Europe, their ribcage flared out, so they would have had no waists, which would have exaggerated their thick-set appearance. Heavy jaws, a double arch over the eyebrow, resulting in a beetle brow, and strong muscles added to the overall thuggish look. But despite the reputation for being thick, Neanderthals were intelligent. They used quite sophisticated stone tools, controlled fire, wore animal skins and buried their dead. The presence of a hyoid bone in their throats also suggested that they could speak, although few experts believe that they were capable of the sophisticated language being developed at the time by early modern humans. Professor Chris Stringer, Head of Human Origins at the National History Museum in London, 
believes that the long period of separation and genetic isolation between the Neanderthals and early modern humans meant that profound physical and mental differences had evolved between them. The question then is whether, when the populations met, they regarded each other as simply people, enemies, aliens, or even prey, he said. We simply don't know the answer, and the answer may have varied from one time and place to another, especially given the vagaries of human behaviour. We may never know what happened when modern humans came to live in the same space inhabited by the Neanderthals. They may simply have avoided one another, with Neanderthals retreating to their last stronghold in Europe, a cave system in Gibraltar where the most recent Neanderthal bones have been found. Or the two species might have engaged in the sort of brutal conflict that has been the hallmark of human history throughout time. The following story from the damninteresting.com website was written by Alan Bellows on April 16, 2007. Project Alpha and the Spoonbenders In the late 1960s, a young Israeli man named Yuri Geller gained a substantial amount of attention and fame following a collection of remarkable demonstrations on US and British television. In full view of astonished audiences, Yuri was seemingly able to manipulate metal with his mind. Spoons softened in his hands, keys curled at the gentle stroke of his fingers, and he was able to cause compasses to wobble at his cajoling. He was also known to restart stopped wristwatches by merely holding them in his hands. According to Geller, these feats were the products of sheer will, a phenomenon known as psychokinesis. In addition to his mental metallurgy and magnetism, the dashing young Israeli demonstrated potent psychic abilities, most notably in his ability to reproduce drawings which he had never seen. A volunteer would draw a picture while Yuri was not watching, and Geller would use his gifts to attempt to reproduce the image. Although his recreations were not always completely accurate, they were sufficiently similar as to provoke astonishment from onlookers. Geller's high-profile exploits in the 1970s significantly raised awareness of paranormal science worldwide, and since that time, many have gone on to mimic his feats. Though there are throngs of sceptics who have reproduced his handiwork under the harsh light of reality, there are still a handful of yet-to-be-explained effects exhibited by Geller and his spoon-bending contemporaries. Most Americans became acquainted with the charismatic Yuri Geller following a series of high-profile television and magazine appearances in the late 1960s and early 1970s. As the cameras looked on, Spoon softened and became almost taffy-like in his fingers. 
Often his audiences were awestruck when a spoon's head separated from its body and clattered to the floor. When he reanimated wristwatches on television, he further dumbfounded observers by urging viewers to each hold their own broken wristwatch, if they had one, allowing him to act as the psychic conduit. Much to their amazement, some of the viewers' watches reportedly started ticking again. By 1972, the media frenzy surrounding Geller finally drew serious attention from the scientific community as supporters and sceptics began to polarise. In order to better understand Urey's methods, the scientist at the Stanford Research Institute, or the SRI, asked him to participate in a series of impartial experiments. Urey eagerly agreed. For five weeks, researchers Harold E. Putoff and Russell Targ made the controversial character the target of their scientific scrutiny as he was subjected to a host of laboratory adventures. Following some informal demonstrations by Geller, Stanford's first test revolved around a number of drawings which had been made prior to the experiments and placed in nested envelopes. Yuri was asked to recreate each selected image on his own paper. Some of the drawings had been examined by the researchers before entering the room with Yuri. Some were double-blind, where not even the researchers knew what was within each envelope before it was opened. And some of the images were brought in by outside consultants, sealed in their envelopes before arriving at the facility. Before most of these experiments, Geller expressed a measure of insecurity about his abilities. And in fact, he declined to respond about 20% of the time due to lack of confidence in his response. But for those he did complete, he displayed a shocking level of accuracy. His representations were crude, but they frequently bore an unmistakable resemblance to the original, though sometimes reversed. The Stanford researchers also conducted tests to measure Geller's ability to detect materials without seeing them, a skill known as dowsing. In each of these experiments he was presented with a box of ten numbered aluminium canisters and asked to determine which one of them contained an object. Before they were presented to Yuri, a third party placed the object in a random canister and then shuffled the can's positions. The objects used were ball bearings, magnets, room temperature water and sugar cubes. Geller was not allowed to touch the cans or the box, otherwise the experiment would be listed as a failure. The protocol indicated that he was to eliminate the cans one by one, pointing to them or calling out their number until only two remained. Then he was required to guess which of the remaining two held the contents by calling out its number and writing it down. Later this method was criticised as needlessly complex, leaving too many gaps where trickery might be used. At first Yuri spent a lot of time waving his hands over the canisters before selecting each one for removal. But as the tests progressed he seemed to gain confidence, until he would eventually simply call out the number of the correct canister upon entering the room. In 14 tests, there were two occasions that he declined to guess, but in all of the other 12 trials, he made the correct selection. 
Futoff and Targ were understandably intrigued by their subject's performance. There were no detectable signs of deception, yet the odds of correctly guessing in all twelve tests was one in a trillion. Another test where Geller showed startling accuracy was one which made use of a standard six-size die in a metal box, both of which were provided by SRI. The die was placed in the box and shaken, and Yuri was asked to state which face would be showing when the lid was open. During the ten tests, he declined to respond twice, but in the other eight he was 100% accurate in his predictions. Yuri's metal manipulation demonstrations were somewhat less impressive. Though he had previously claimed the ability to bend metal objects without making physical contact, he was unable to demonstrate this in the laboratory. When allowed to lightly touch the spoons, forks and rods with his hands, they did indeed bend, but such evidence was useless due to the inability to determine the amount of force Geller was using. Another of the psychokinetic tests proved moderately successful, this one involving a one gram steel weight on an electric scale. Without touching the weight or scale, which were both covered by a glass dome, Yuri was able to cause measurable changes in a scale's reading. The resulting SRI report was published in the science journal Nature in 1974. The researchers weren't quick to draw conclusions and they largely dismissed the psychokinesis results as inconclusive, but they felt that he had performed successfully enough that the phenomenon warranted further scientific study. Putoff and Targ coined the term Geller effect to describe his remarkable displays of apparently paranormal powers. Geller's charisma and talents won him regular appearances on television and in the print media over the next few years, and he was soon celebrated as a supernatural superstar. With the Stanford research seemingly corroborating his claims, the scepticism surrounding him began to erode. Soon, another man appeared who could also demonstrate these remarkable feats before audiences of his own. His name was James Randi, otherwise known as the Amazing Randi. He too appeared to possess the astonishing ability to soften spoons with a gentle touch. But Randi made no claims to supernatural powers. In fact, he was a stage magician and a scientific sceptic. He prepared the spoons in advance by bending them back and forth until the neck was sufficiently weakened. He also convincingly tweaked keys and cutlery, quickly bending them with his hands as he directed his viewers' attentions elsewhere. After performing each trick, he explained to his audience how he accomplished the simple illusions. Randy was careful to point out that his demonstrations were not positive proof that Geller was a fraud, but rather that trickery was a more reasonable explanation than supernatural powers. In 1973, The Amazing Randy received a telephone call from the producers of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, who had booked Geller as an upcoming guest. Johnny Carson himself had spent some time as a stage magician, so he was sceptical of Geller's claims, and he wanted Randy's assistance in sidestepping any shenanigans. Randy suggested that the producers present Geller with an assortment of their own unprepared spoons, aluminium cans and sealed drawings. 
When Yuri walked out on stage, he was uncharacteristically nervous as his gaze fell on the collection of objects. When prompted to demonstrate his skills later in the show, he was unable to proceed, complaining that he was not feeling strong on that particular evening. The incident had little effect on Yuri's popularity, and over the next few years, Geller amassed a fortune. He claimed that his wealth was largely the result of dowsing services performed for major oil, gold and mineral mining companies, but at least a portion of his riches were the fruit of his fame. He remained a fixture of the popular media, and he continued to astonish audiences. Other people around the world began to claim similar abilities, and spoon-bending shortly became a staple of psychic demonstrations. In the late 1970s, the McDonnell Laboratory for Physical Research in St. Louis began an organised effort to locate and study individuals who could convincingly demonstrate the Geller effect. James Randi contacted the researchers and gave them advice on how to avoid being duped. But the scientists did not welcome his sceptical input. During the early phases of the testing, many of the applicants were disqualified for failing to demonstrate their skills in the lab. But two young men, Mike Edwards and Steve Shaw, appeared to be authentic. In a series of publicised experiments, the two men contorted an assortment of cutlery, caused objects to levitate, coaxed compasses to quiver, and recreated drawings which were provided in sealed envelopes. It seemed that science had vindicated Yuri Geller and his contemporaries yet again. In 1981, after four years of testing at the McDonnell Labs, Edwards and Shaw held a press conference in New York with Discover magazine. The pair of famous psychics made an announcement which left their audiences agape. Mike Edwards told the crowd, The truth is, we are not psychics. We are magicians. Steve Shaw added amidst the murmuring, Yes, for the past four years, we've been fooling people. They went on to explain that they were participating in Project Alpha, an effort launched by James Randi to illustrate that modern paranormal research was so blinded by bias that it was incapable of detecting deception. Edwards and Shaw demonstrated many of their methods to the assembled press, mostly consisting of basic sleight of hand. In some of the laboratory spoon-bending tests, they explained how they secretly switched the tags between various spoons so the researchers' angular measurements before and after the experiments would show detectable changes in each spoon's shape. In others, they handle one spoon in plain sight to direct the experimenter's attention away from their other hand, which was manually bending another spoon in concealment. Later, the bent spoon would be presented as evidence of success. They also employed small magnets for many of their illusions, and they even used their breath to make certain objects move. In nearly every instance, the recommendations Randy had made to McDonnell Labs at the outset would have caught the deception. Some of the paranormal researchers were so desperate to reject these confessions that they accused Edwards and Shaw of being real psychics who were lying about their true abilities. The field of parapsychology was crippled by the news of the ruse, and many of the researchers involved were discredited by Project Alpha. 
Its goal had not been to embarrass anyone, but rather it was a social experiment used to demonstrate that parapsychologists are susceptible to deception and self-deception, regardless of their intelligence and training. Project Alpha beautifully illustrated the human tendency to seek only that evidence which supports one's preconceptions, a phenomenon known to psychology as confirmation bias. Though he was not directly discredited by the events, Yuri Geller's fame faded over the following years. In 1988, a British businessman named Gerald Fleming offered to donate £250,000 to charity if Geller could execute a spoon bend under controlled laboratory conditions, but Geller never responded to the invitation. Geller maintains to this day that his talents are genuinely supernatural, though he acknowledges that some of his feats can be mimicked using simple stage magic or natural phenomena. For instance, a stopped watch will often become temporarily reanimated after being held in the hands for several minutes due to movements and body heat. However, not all of Geller's SRI demonstrations have been fully explained, such as his double-blind remote drawing tests or the die in a box. The James Randi Education Foundation, or the JREF, currently offers a reward of one million US dollars to any psychic who can convincingly demonstrate their paranormal powers under control conditions. According to the rules, both he and the party accepting the challenge must agree in advance regarding what constitutes a success or a failure. Though over 1,000 applicants have made the attempt, none have successfully collected the reward. So far, Yuri Geller has not taken this opportunity to prove himself, nor have the other high-profile self-proclaimed psychics such as Sylvia Brown or John Edward. These days, Geller can occasionally be coaxed into contorting some tableware or wobbling a compass, but he seldom performs for crowds. Recently, some video evidence has appeared which seems to show Yuri utilising magicians' tricks, such as his use of what appears to be a false thumb, but no concrete evidence of fraud has yet been uncovered. Today, Geller directs much of his energy into his family and creative pursuits. He is an accomplished artist, and his creative juices have been wrung out upon the pages of newspapers and magazines for years. He also designs clothing and jewellery. He gives occasional interviews and he can sometimes be seen driving around in his 1976 Cadillac he calls the Geller Effect. Its outer surfaces are bristling with bent tableware, each of which came from the mouth of a celebrity or historical figure. He has stated that he intends to drive it around the Middle East in an effort to bring peace to the region. Given their unwillingness to subject themselves to controlled laboratory testing, Geller and his spoon-bending colleagues are likely to remain filed in the interesting but unlikely draw for some time to come. Were it not for the handful of as-yet-inexplicable demonstrations, it would be easy to disregard such illusionists entirely. Whether Geller's gifts spring from an inner well of creative deception or from the realm of magic, unicorns and fairies, it is certain that he is a highly talented and charismatic individual. 
His exploits have demonstrated beyond a doubt that the human mind possesses incredible powers of manipulation. All of this assumes, of course, that there is indeed a spoon. Much of the music for this podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com And if you listen to my Origins podcast, you know that I'm suggesting the idea of doing a live show on the TalkShoe Network called Paul Rex Live, where listeners to Bizarre Bizarre, Mysteries Abound and the Origin podcast can call in and discuss stories or present stories of their own, or anything they like really. So if you're interested, go to www.talkshoe.com, look up how to use it. If you just want to listen, you can just use the web-based client, but if you want to ring in, you need to set up an account. And soon I'll be telling you the date and time, and we'll get together and do a live show on Talk. So if you're interested, find out about it and I'll be letting you know soon the day and the time. The following story comes from the www.mysterymag.com website. The Appearance of a Bar Guest by Louise Jeffrey, The Wise Woman of Littendale. In Hearn's table book is to be found the following legendary story. In the year 1700 and something, in the lonely gill not far from Arncliffe, stood a solitary cottage. A more wretched habitation the imagination cannot picture. It contained a single apartment, inhabited by an old woman called Bertha, who was throughout the valley accounted as a wise woman, and a practiser of the art that none may name. In the autumn, or rather in the latter end of the summer of 1700 and something, I set out one evening to visit the cottage of the wise woman. I had never beheld the interior, and, led on by curiosity and mischief, was determined to see it. Having arrived at the cottage, I knocked at the gate. "'Come in,' said a voice which I knew to be Bertha's. I entered. The old woman was seated on a three-legged stool by a turf fire, surrounded by three black cats and an old sheepdog. "'Well,' she exclaimed, "'What brings you here? "'What can have induced you to pay a visit to old Bertha?' "'I answered, "'Be not offended. "'I have never before this evening viewed the interior of your cottage, "'and wishing to do so have made this visit. "'I wished also to see you perform some of your incantations.' "'I pronounced the last word ironically, as Bertha observed it, and said, "'Then you doubt my power?' Think me an impostor, 
and consider my incantations mere jugglery? You may think otherwise, but sit down by my humble hearth and less than half an hour you shall see such an instance of my power as I never hitherto allowed mortal to witness. I obeyed and approached the fire. I now gazed around me and minutely viewed the apartment. Three stools, an old deal table and a few pans, three pictures of Merlin, Nostradamus and Michael Scott, a cauldron and a sack, with the contents of which I was unacquainted, form the whole stock of Bertha. The witch, having sat by me a few minutes, rose and said, Now for our incantations, behold me, but interrupt me not. She then with chalk drew a circle on the floor, and in the midst of it placed a chafing dish filled with burning embers. On this she fixed the cauldron, which she half filled with water. She then commanded me to take my station at the further end of the circle, which I did accordingly. Bertha then opened the sack, and taking from it various ingredients, threw them into the charmed pot. Amongst other articles, I noticed a skeleton head, bones of different sizes, and dried carcasses of some small animals. While thus employed, she continued muttering some words in an unknown language. All I remember hearing was the word Koenig. At length the water boiled and the witch, presenting me with a glass, told me to look through it at the cauldron. I did so, and beheld a figure enveloped in the steam. At the first glance, I knew not what to make of it, but I soon recognised the face of N, a friend and intimate acquaintance. He was dressed in his usual mode, but seemed unwell and pale. I was astonished and trembled. The figure having disappeared, Bertha removed the cauldron and extinguished the fire. Now, she said, do you doubt my power? I have brought before you the form of a person who is some miles from this place. Was there any deception in the appearance? I am no imposter, though you have hitherto regarding me as such. She ceased speaking. I hurried to the door and said, Good night, Bertha. Stop, she said. I have not done with you. I will show you something more wonderful than the appearance this evening. Tomorrow, at midnight, go and stand upon Arntliff Bridge and look at the water on the left side of it. Nothing will harm you, fear not. And why should I go to Arncliff Bridge? What end can be answered by it? The place is lonely. I dread to be there at such an hour. May I have a companion? No. Why not? Because the charm will be broken. What charm? I cannot tell you. You will not? I will not give you any further information. Obey me, nothing shall harm you. Well, Bertha, I said, you shall be obeyed. I believe you would do me no injury. I will repair to Arncliffe Bridge tomorrow at midnight. Good night. I then left the cottage and returned home. When I retired to rest, I could not sleep. Slumber fled my pillow. 
and with restless eyes I lay ruminating upon the strange occurrences at the cottage, and on what I was to behold on Arncliffe Bridge. Morning dawned, I arose unrefreshed and fatigued. During the day I was unable to attend my business, my coming adventure entirely engrossed my mind. Night arrived, I repaired to the bridge. Never shall I forget the scene. It was a lovely night. The full-orbed moon was sailing peacefully through a clear blue sky, and its beams, like streaks of silvery luster, were dancing on the waters of the Skurfair, and the moonlight falling on the hills formed them into a variety of fantastic shapes. Here one might behold the semblance of a ruined abbey, with towers and spires and Anglo-Saxon and Gothic arches. At another place there seemed a castle frowning in feudal grandeur, with its buttresses, battlements and parapets. The stillness which reigned around, broken only by the murmuring of the stream, the cottages scattered here and there along its banks, and the woods wearing an autumnal tinge, all united to compose a scene of calm and perfect beauty. I leaned against the left battlement of the bridge. I waited quarter of an hour, half an hour, an hour. Nothing appeared. I listened. All was silent. I looked around. I saw nothing. Surely, I thought, I have mistaken the hour. No, it must be midnight. Bertha has deceived me, fool that I am. Why have I obeyed the bedlam? Thus I reasoned. The clock of the neighbouring church chimed. I counted the strokes. It was twelve o'clock. I had mistaken the hour and resolved to stay a little longer on the bridge. I resumed my station which I had quitted and gazed on the stream. The river in that part runs in a clear still channel and all its music dies away. As I looked on the stream I heard a low moaning sound and perceived the water violently troubled without any apparent cause. The disturbance having continued a few minutes ceased and the river became calm and again flowed on in peacefulness. What could this mean? Whence came that low moaning sound? What caused the disturbance of the river? I asked myself these questions again and again, unable to give them any rational answer. With a slight indescribable kind of fear, I bent my steps homewards. On turning a corner of the lane that led me to my father's house, a huge dog, apparently of the Newfoundland breed, crossed my path and looked wistfully at me. Poor fellow, I exclaimed, hast thou lost thy master? Come home with me and I will use thee well till we find him. The dog followed me and when I arrived at my place of abode I looked for it but saw no traces of it and I conjectured it had found its master. On the following morning I repaired again to the cottage of the witch and found her, as on the former occasion, seated by the fire. Well, Bertha, I said, I have obeyed you. I was yesterday at midnight on Arncliffe Bridge. And at what sight were you a witness? 
I saw nothing except a slight disturbance of the stream. I know, she said, that you saw a disturbance of the water, but did you behold nothing more? Nothing. Nothing? Your memory fails you. I forgot, Bertha. As I was proceeding home, I met a Newfoundland dog, which I suppose belonged to some traveller. That dog, answered Bertha, never belonged to mortal. No human being is his master. The dog you saw was Barghest. You may perhaps have heard of him. I have frequently heard tales of Barghest, but I never credited them. If the legend of my native hills is true, a death may be expected to follow his appearance. You are right, and a death will follow his last night's appearance. Whose death? Not yours. As Bertha refused to make any further communication, I left her. In less than three hours after I quitted her, I was informed that my friend N, whose figure I had seen enveloped in the mist of the cauldron, had that morning committed suicide by drowning himself at Arncliffe Bridge, in the very spot where I beheld the disturbance of the stream. Well, that concludes episode eight of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I look forward to meeting everyone again in episode nine. You probably noticed that this episode is a little longer than usual and I made this one that way to make up for the one that I didn't get a chance to do last week. Well, until episode nine, it's bye for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.